All right, well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Sunday worship. Glad to have you here with us. This is your first time. Glad you could join us. My name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here. And again, I'm looking forward to not just our service today, but the service comes afterwards. We are having our first baptism service here as a church, especially since COVID and the shutdown that took place. And one reason why our church baptizes, if you're somebody who's new or you're unfamiliar with baptism, uh, baptism we consider as one of the church ordinances along with the Lord's Supper. Uh, by ordinance, what we simply mean is it's a practice that Jesus ordains to portray the gospel. It's meant to be a living picture of what the gospel looks like. And it's not just meant to be something that blesses those who are getting baptized. I feel like for some of us, we want to be there because we want to support those who are being baptized. But it's actually supposed to actually bless the entire church. The entire church, we are meant to be a part of it because it reminds us of who God is and how God works in our lives. And I think especially for today and this season, in light of everything happening in the world, uh, it's really nice to be reminded that there is a greater kingdom, that there is a great king, and that we have hope in God's restoration. And so I hope you guys can make it out. Again, we're going to be serving lunch right after. Uh, and then uh, it's going to be to the side of, of this on campus. We're going to have the baptism service that's there. It won't be too long, and we look forward to that time together. Uh, for those of you who maybe this is your first time here, we are going through a sermon series entitled Formed. And this whole idea of the sermon series is this idea that for us, whether we know it or not, we are being formed, whether it be unintentionally or whether it be intentionally. To be unintentionally formed, all you got to do is wake up tomorrow and you will be formed by whatever happens in your life versus intentional formation is the call for those who follow Jesus where we want to actually follow Jesus in a way where we're formed like him. Now, uh, we're, we've been going through this about four weeks or so. Next week is going to be the last week that we go through it. But today, we're going to continue on the topic that we talked about last week and continue on today by looking at the letter of Galatians once again. So if you have your programs, we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 6. If you don't have your programs or if you have, prefer to use your Bible or your app, it's going to be Galatians chapter 6. We're actually going to be looking at, not the first half, but uh, we're going to be looking at starting in verse 7 of Galatians chapter 6. So if you're in the programs there, it's not that first part, but it's just going to be the second part there. Um, verse 7, and we'll read all the way to verse 10. So if you're there with me, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the churches in Galatia, starting verse 7. Pa Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the reading of God's word. So a few months ago, I remember I was invited to a birthday party, not for me personally to come to, but for our children, because it was a children's birthday party. And I remember at this birthday party, it was great. They had all these, you know, typical things you have at kids' parties. They had, like, food. They had snacks. They had, like, a live band playing. And they had, like, this playpen filled with those plastic balls, you know, those little plastic balls that you have when you're a kid. And so they had a playpen filled with that, and all the kids at one point were in there jumping in, including my kids, my two kids, my son and my daughter. They also both jumped in. And in the midst of them playing in this ball pit of this playpen, all of a sudden there's one kid who just randomly started getting the balls and just started throwing it at everybody. He was just throwing the ball at all the kids. And I was just watching this whole thing play out, just like seeing what's going to happen. And I see the kid, he throws the ball, and it hits my son smack in the face like a plastic ball. And I was like, oh, wow, let's see. You know, that was interesting. Like, let's see what goes on there. And I see my son, like, he kind of like is processing it. And then a few minutes later, I see my son step out, and he just stands next to me. 
And he's just standing there, and he has like this expression on his face that I know is not very happy. And so I asked my son, like, hey, how come you're not playing right now? And he told me that um, a kid threw a ball at his face. And I said, oh, I saw. How does that make you feel? My son, he looked at me just like trying to process his words. He's like, I, I don't like that kid. I, I, feel like, I feel like hitting him. Now, if you know my son, he's you know, only six years old. Uh, he's more of a lover, not a fighter. And so for him to say something like that, I was like, oh, wow, like, why, why do you want to hit him? And my son responded saying, it's my brain. My brain keeps telling me I need to hit him. And that began like this new interesting phase in my son's life where whenever he wanted to share something, anything bad, he'd blame his brain. He'd be like, you know, today at school, I wanted to hit this kid, but my brain kept telling me to hit him. I didn't want him to. Uh, today, you know, I, I feel like, you know what I feel like right now? I feel like saying the S word. The S word is shut up in our households. <laughs> I feel like saying the S word right now. It's my brain. My brain keeps telling me that. And I wish, and he would say sometimes, like, I wish I didn't have a brain, so I don't have to, like, worry about that. And, you know, I realized, like, my son was saying that. I was like, oh, like, he doesn't have a category to explain the bad things that he wants to do. He only knows how to blame his brain. And that was, like, kind of the phrases that he would use all the time. And so it was interesting. He'd just be blaming uh, his brain. Uh, as funny as that kind of is, I feel like modern people, we kind of share in a similar struggle where there are things that we want to do that we don't want to do, and yet we don't really have a category for that. Like, how do we explain that tension that's there? Like, why do I choose to binge Netflix as opposed to exercising? It's kind of hard to explain, like, why that's the case. Why do I, why do I scroll my phone all night rather than pray? Uh, why, do I, why is it so hard just to say sorry to my wife? Why can't I just apologize to her? Why do I lose my temper? Why do I struggle with lust? And I feel like it's tough today because in the culture that we live in, every desire that we have tends to be equally valid. Nothing t- it's, it's all about be true to yourself, make sure that you do you, do what you want. Um, but we know this isn't true. Life doesn't work that way because some desires are, can be pretty destructive and difficult to deny, while other desires lead to flourishing. What the Bible says is that there's actually a category for this. Not just the Bible, but all the ancients understood this. And the Bible says, this is your flesh. This is your flesh. Because as Christians, as we've been talking about, we are living this world not in a vacuum, not just in the physical, but there is something spiritual that we believe is out there. And we believe that there are what we call the three enemies of the soul. There is the, the devil, there is the flesh, and there is the world. The devil, he is a, we believe he's a spiritual being, and he attacks us with lies. And our flesh... We believe those lies because those lies appeal to these disordered desires within us. And we all have it. Now the problem is that if we continue to follow the desires of our flesh, we end up being miserable. That is the Christian argument. Because our strongest desires, which our flesh usually appeals to, they are not our deepest desires. They are not the deepest desires of our hearts. So how do we fight against the flesh? How do we not just follow the the, the strongest desires? The solution is not willpower, although willpower helps with 90% of your struggles, but for that final 10%, which is usually the ones that causes the most problem in life, we need something more powerful. And we believe as Christians, we have it through the Spirit. We need the power of the Spirit. We need to invite the Spirit into our lives and grow new desires. That's pretty much what we talked all about last week. Now, how do we actually grow and do this? 
How do we actually fight against the desires of the flesh? And how do we invite the spirit into our lives? Galatians chapter six, the passage that we just read, it talks about a lot of things that seems almost random. It talks about rebuking sin, bearing each other's burdens, teachers, doing good. But actually this comes right after the passage we read last week. In chapter five, Paul told us we are to walk by the spirit, live by the spirit, let the spirit keep in step with the spirit. So in chapter six, what's actually going on here is illustrating what life in the spirit looks like how we can actually do that. So what I want to do today is I want to focus mainly on verses uh, 7 to 10, because I think there's actually something really interesting that's going on there. And the hope is that we walk away with two things. So not three points today, just two points today. Number one, I hope we can walk away understanding how we can grow in the Spirit, to understand like, how that works. And then secondly, number two, how can we practice life in the Spirit? What are some practices that as a church that we can do uh, to grow in the spirit. So understanding how we grow in the spirit, practicing life in the spirit. Let's look at the first one, understanding how we grow in the spirit. So in verses six, uh, seven to eight, especially, this is a very underrated passage, very underrated, because in this passage, we actually see that Paul, he gives a key insight into the mechanism of how one person lives in the flesh versus how one person lives in the spirit. Look again what it says in verse seven to eight. It says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, very interesting, in verse seven, why does Paul begin the passage that way? Where he says, do not be deceived. Hey, church, don't don't be tricked. Don't be deceived, that's what Paul's saying. You know why? God is not mocked. You can't make a mockery of God. And then he starts talking about this whole thing of sowing and reaping. What's going on there? Like, why does Paul begin that way? I think a nice way to explain it is through a quick illustration. I remember when I was young, uh, like most of you, I grew up in a household where my parents had these big Asian dreams for me. And one of those Asian dreams was that I would be a classic pianist, that I could play the piano beautifully. And so like a lot of you might have experienced, my parents, they brought a teacher to unlock the potential in me. And I remember this teacher would come and there was this older Korean lady. And she told me in our first session, hey, make sure if you, that you uh, play this song. And I played a song for her and I tried my best and she guided me through and she said, practice one hour every day. Make sure you do that before I come back next week. And so next week comes and my teacher sits down and she goes, did you practice one hour every week? And I said, yes, I did. And she says, then go play. And I started playing and horrible. It was horrible. And she looked at me and she's like, I cannot be mocked. I cannot be fooled. She didn't really say that, but that's basically what she said. She's like, what is going on? Clearly, clearly you did not practice every day. And I was like, no, I did, I promise. She's like, no, you didn't. She could tell. Just by the way I was playing, she could tell that I didn't spend a single minute trying to practice the piano. Because she, it, does, it doesn't lie. The, playing the song does not lie. You cannot fool her. And Paul is pretty much saying the same thing. Paul is saying, you could say you love God all you want. You could say, I want to follow God. I'm trying to follow God. But Paul is saying, God is not mocked. You could talk all you want, but talk is cheap. Why? Because of the following verse. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. You know what Paul is doing there? He is appealing to a principle that's known as the law of returns. The law of returns. The law of returns, this is not a Christian idea. This is just a universal principle that's built into the fabric of the world. It's just how life works. Um, we, We may not use that exact term, but all of us kind of know what the law of returns are because of the basic modern statements. For example, what comes around goes around. 
Generally speaking, that's true. If you murder a lot of people, you might get murdered. So this, what comes around goes around. That's kind of just a general principle of life. You get what you pay for. You spend a lot of money, you're going to get good quality. If you don't, you get low quality. Generally speaking, that's true. Poetic justice, karma, those are just kind of modern examples of this thing called the law of returns. Now, Paul, he is speaking to an agrarian society. They're mainly farmers. And so when he speaks to them, he uses this imagery of sowing and reaping to illustrate the law of returns. And this idea of the law of returns, of sowing and reaping, it has two principles. There are two principles to it. Principle number one is this. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Meaning that, for example, if you sow or plant tomato seeds, you will not get potatoes, you will get tomatoes. Whatever you sow, that you will reap. That's the first principle. Here's the second principle. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Meaning, if you plant tomato seeds and it does not grow the next day, just wait. Just wait. Something's going to happen. Just wait there. And what is, what's interesting is Paul, he is confirming, in other words, this idea of the law of returns. It is ingrained in the physical world, and you could see it play out in the physical world. And what's even more interesting is now, Paul, he says, this that's true in the physical world, it's true in the spiritual world. He applies this idea of sowing and reaping into our spiritual lives, where the things that you sow in the flesh, you will reap it. The things you sow in the spirit, you will reap it. So for example, every time you sow to the flesh, meaning you give into your desires of the flesh, what Paul is saying is that you are planting something in the soil of your heart. It does not come out neutral. Something happens. For example, if you are jealous of somebody, you look at someone's Instagram, you go, I love that life. How did they deserve that? And you do that, and you keep doing it. You keep doing it. You keep scrolling. You keep looking. You keep feeling jealous. What's happening is not just you're feeling a moment of jealousy, but jealousy is taking root in your heart. Keep doing it. It's growing over time, and you're going to reap something. You're going to reap unhealthiness, unhealthy comparison, unhealthy relationships. On the flip side, though, more positive, when you sow to the Spirit, meaning that you are connecting to the Spirit, you're also planting something in the soil of your heart. For example, if you sow kindness where you are kind to somebody, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit, kindness is not just something you're doing, it is taking root in your heart, keep being kind, it grows, and you will start to reap healthy, healthier relationships. Because whatever you sow, you will reap. If you sow to the flesh, flesh. If you sow to the Spirit, Spirit. Now, if the law of returns applies not just to the physical world, but into our spiritual lives, then we actually gain interesting insight into the flesh and the spirit and how that works. Again, a lot of what I'm talking about comes from this book called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. And I love this kind of diagram that he kind of gives that explains, like, this gives an insight of, like, how we are what we are. You know why you are the way you are? It's not random. It's not just genetic. But this is the chart breakdown. Choices, habits, character, destiny. Your choices that you make every single day, if you keep doing them, they become your habit. And your habits become your character. And your character becomes your destiny. That's how life works. Your choices become your habits. Your habits become your character. And your character become your destiny. What do I mean by that? Let me break down each one. First, your choices become your habits. When you make choices and you do them, something happens to you. It's not neutral. You don't just walk away going, yeah, that was a choice and nothing happens. Something actually affects you in that choice. 
In the 1990s, there were these MIT professors, and they were recognizing that, you know, 95% of the decisions human beings make, they are not rational. Meaning, you're not thinking, hmm, should I take this turn or this turn? Hmm, should I sit in this chair or this chair? You don't usually think that way. It's usually habitual. It's not rational. You're doing it out of habit. But the question is, why? What, what part of the brain puts you in automatic mode and makes you sit down where you sit? And so they did an experiment, these MIT professors. They got these uh, lab rats, and they put microtechnology in their brain so that they could see on a screen how the brain waves are being activated. And what happened was they get the mice, and they put a maze, and in the maze, they hide chocolate. And when the mice first come in, they, the mice, they go, they're kind of you know, looking for there's a cat there or there's danger, and they slowly make their way, and they find the chocolate. And what they find is that when the, in the brain wave activities, and that first time that they did it, the entire brain is being activated. It's just like all over the place, like just looking to check to see what's going on. But after doing this for every day for an entire week, what happened was the rat would get the chocolate more quickly, but they look at the brain waves and they would see the entire brain is asleep. The entire brain is now deactivated, except for one part. One part of the brain, the basal ganglia. It's a small part of your brain that they call the habit part of your brain that stores and grows and takes all the things you're doing and creates habits for you. So now when you live life, literally you're, most of the time your brain's just deactivated. It's just that small part of your brain that's being, that's being like awoke because your brain wants to save energy. Your brain wants to sleep. And because of that, what happens is every time a new activity that you do, your whole brain's activated, but it's rewiring that small part of your brain so that you don't have to think all the time anymore. You just do it. Now, this becomes either your best friend or your worst enemy. This is a good thing or it's a bad thing, depending on what you're doing repeatedly. For example, riding a bike. Do you remember the first time you rode a bike, how hard that was? I remember, because I see my son. The first time he rode a bike, I'm like, wow, he's really bad. Like, I, I, you try to teach him, but he just doesn't get it. And rather than judge him, I empathize because I remembered, you know, the first time I rode a bike, that was really hard. It's because his whole brain's being activated and doesn't know. But now when you see my son ride a bike, he doesn't even think about it. He doesn't think, wait, do I, how do I hold it? He just goes. He just goes because now it's automatic. Or think of it, here's another way that happened where I saw the bad version. I remember uh, I was visiting a friend because they were moving somewhere. They moved to a new house. I remember like, I brought them like a housewarming gift. And so I drove to the house and I knocked on the door. I'm like, hey, like, I'm, you know, I'm here. Nobody's answering. So I text him going, hey, I'm at your place. And he goes, he goes, no, you're not. I'm like, yeah, I am. I'm like, I'm at your place right now. No one's opening the door. He's like, what are you talking about? I just opened my door. You're not here. And I realized I went to the wrong place. I went to his old house. My brain, I'm so used to going to the old place that he went to. I was at the old house, even though I meant to visit his new place. Why? Because my brain just went on automatic mode. That's just the way it happened, because my, my brain's literally being rerouted or was routed to think that was his home. This is the miracle of the human brain that's designed by God. Point your brain in the right direction, and eventually your brain will point you in that same direction. Now, when you think about that's the way that your choices become habits and how that works, it's really fascinating. It's even really helpful, especially when you think about your work routines, you think about exercising. It's like, oh, that's how it works. That's how you develop healthy habits. But you know, when you actually apply that to your spiritual life, it's kind of sobering. It's kind of sobering. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he says it like this, quote, do you realize that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, 
into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. In other words, what Lewis is saying is something similar, which is what I'm saying right now, which is all your choices, it's turning you to something. It is not inconsequential, especially when it's repeated choices that are habitual, because what happens is all your habits, it becomes your character. It becomes your character. Let me explain what I mean by that. People ask me all the time, someone just asked me this morning, what's it like having three kids now? I have three children. I just had a newborn a few months ago. What's it like? Because not many people in our church have three. And so whatever someone asks me that, I'll tell them, you know, it's a blessing, but these days with three kids, I struggle with something I never struggled with before. Anger. I'm always angry. I'm always angry. Before, I never understood why people were angry. Like when I see people lose their tempers or they, they yell at each other, I'm like, oh my gosh, like pull yourself together. Like just chill. But now I get you guys. I understand. Because I am always watching my two older kids nonstop, and they're always doing things that get me so angry. And when I look back, a lot of the anger moments, it's legitimate. Like, I have every reason to be angry. For example, when they hit each other, oh, I'm so angry. Like, nothing gets you more angry than your kids fight. And so when I hear one of them hit each other, I just get angry. Or uh, when they show me attitude, I just see red. It's just like red, and so I get angry. Or if they break something, I'm like, oh, I get so angry when they break something because usually it's something that I told them not to like touch or so forth. So looking back, a lot of good reasons to be angry. But you know what's interesting? These past two months as I grew into a lot of my anger, there are a lot of things that did not deserve anger. I just get angry now, no matter what. It's really sad. My son would be like, can you help me tie my shoe? I'm like, again? I have to tie your shoe again? Are you serious? We're, in, we're late. And I get so angry. He's just asking me to tie his shoe. It's like, dude, what's my problem? Or be at nighttime before he goes to bed, he goes, before I go to bed, Dad, can I get some water? Are you serious? You want water right now? Fine, and I'll grab it. And again, looking back, I'm like, what is my problem? Well, the worst is when he was sick. When he was sick and he goes, Dad, can, can I get medicine? Oh my gosh, are you serious? You need medicine right now? <sighs> I get so angry. And what's even worse is not only do I get angry at my kids these past two months, I've been angry at like everybody. Like everybody's going to get me angry. My wife asked me for something. I will feel so angry, but I never show it because there's more consequences. So I'm just like, okay. And so, but there's this anger inside when she asks for things. Or my parents will call me asking me for favors to do things. Inside, I'm just like so angry. And again, I never normally struggle with stuff like that. Or people at church will want to talk about something or complain about something or talk about like a meeting or something. I get so angry. And I'm like, what is going on? I never struggled with anger before. And yet these past two months, I'm responding everything with anger. Why? And I look back going, oh my gosh, this is a real life example of I was always in, I was in the context where I could choose anger more easily because my kids were driving me nuts. I constantly chose anger as a way to respond. Anger has become my habit. Now, I am just an angry person. I am an angry person these days. And I realized, like, wow, this is really true. My, my choices shaped my habits, and my habits, it made me into a certain character. This is how character is formed. It begins with you making a choice, but those choices become repeated, and now you just become that person. 
For example, you can choose if you want to be a negative, make a negative comment if you want. Do you want to think negatively about that? Do you want to say something negative? That's your choice. But keep doing that. Keep being negative. Keep thinking negatively. Keep saying negative stuff. What ends up happening is you are no longer a person who does and thinks negatively. You are now a negative person. If you're somebody who chooses bitterness and you choose to be bitter about things, you are transformed from a person who acts bitter to just a bitter person. You're just bitter now, a bitter guy. Or the positive. If you're somebody who chooses joy and you continually act joyful, you're no longer just a person who acts joyful, you're a joyful person. And we all have people like that in our lives, right? They're just joyful. Or positive, choose positivity. You're just a positive person after a while. Your habits become your character because you are either sowing to the flesh or sowing to the spirit, and over time, you will reap it. That's just how life works. Now, here's the problem. Your ability to choose, it shrinks over time. It's limited as you get older. Because the more you continue choosing something, and the more ingrained of a habit it is, like negative thinking, bitterness, watching porn, joyfulness, whatever it might be, it is more difficult for you to change as you get older. The more, if you're somebody, I just check my phone every morning, that's just my thing. Wordle is a new thing every single day. There's a new word, I just check it. At one point, keep doing that, and you become a person who has to check your phone every single day in the morning. It's now your character. You're somebody, I just have to drink to unwind. I just, need, I just need it just for me to unwind after work. Find the beginning, but keep doing that, and it becomes a part of your character. You just can't change that anymore. If you become somebody where you go, you know, I have, that, that comment was too lame. I have to be snarky. I just have to be, have, make a snarky response. Keep doing that, and then at one point, you can't help but be snarky. You cannot help but shoot down ideas or shoot down comments because you just became a snarky person. You don't have a choice anymore. It becomes who you are. And that's why I noticed that it's so much easier oftentimes for 20-year-olds to change than 40-year-olds. When you're 20, you're still forming. You're still making choices. The amount of choices, it's kind of limited still in your 20 years. But by the time you are 40, those choices have crystallized and habituated, and now it formed a character. And it's really hard to change character. Easier to change choices, Hard to change character because you have now been formed. And that's why what's interesting is you ever notice old people, not like me old, like 40s, but like 70, 80-year-old old? You ever notice that oftentimes a 70 or 80-year-old, they're either amazing, the most amazing people you meet, or the worst grouchiest person you meet. There is no neutral old person. Wonderful people, grouchy evil people. Why? Because now all the choices and the habits and the character is fully defined and it's just clear of how they turned out. And what's interesting is your habits not only does it become your character, but lastly, your character it becomes your destiny. It becomes your destiny. You know what's really fascinating about this passage that we just read? Notice Paul, he says, you sow to the flesh. When you sow to the flesh, it says it leads to what? Corruption. What does that mean? We get a hint by what the Spirit leads to. So to the Spirit, it leads to what? Eternal life. What does Paul mean there? That's a very interesting thing. Again, let me explain through an illustration. 
I remember a group of us, my friends and I, we went to uh, travel, I think it was Sequoia. We were outside hiking all over Sequoia on the different hikes. And I remember there was a day we came together and we were eating outdoors and it was all outdoors and we we're all talking after a long day. And I remember the, everyone was talking going, you know, isn't this great? Isn't it wonderful being in Sequoia? I wish when I'm older, I could retire and just travel and just go on all these different trails and national parks. That would be the best retirement life. And my wife was there and she was like, me too. Oh my gosh, if me and Tom could retire and we just travel in all these national parks, that'd be wonderful. I remember my wife was saying that and I was thinking in my brain, that's the last thing I would want for retirement. Are you kidding me? And the reason why is because I don't like traveling. I do it for my wife. I, if it was up to me, I would be in the OC the rest of my life in the same house, just reading a book. That's like my retirement plan. I do not like hiking at all. Like hiking is like, where are you going? Like, why are you going that way in the sun? And they go, oh, let's go to the trees and the waterfalls. And I'm like, I could read about that. Like, why am I looking at this? Like, I don't have to do this. And again, I appreciate it. I respect it. But as a retirement thing for the rest of my life, hiking as a 78 year old, no, thank you. Not my thing. Now, why do I feel this way? Is it because I've been genetically predisposed to not like hiking? Probably not. Was there a trauma that happened where all of a sudden I remember a traumatic moment happened in my hiking life? Not really. What happened was the choices I made throughout my entire life have made me a person incapable of enjoying hiking to the extent that other people do. I have made choices like staying home, reading, just being at home. <laughs> That's just the choices I made. And that all accumulated into being a person who does not enjoy things like hikes or traveling. I could do it, but it's not my ultimate pleasure. Now, what's really fascinating is this. When you choose to follow always the desires of your flesh or the desires of your spirit, where does that lead to? Where does that lead to? And we get a hint here. If you never care about Jesus' word, like the Bible is so boring. It is so boring to read. I just don't want to read it. You know, in heaven, all you're going to hear is Jesus talk. Why would you want to be there? If Jesus is boring now, why would he be boor- not be boring for eternity? Or, you know, church people, I like my high school friends way better than church people. My high school friends are more fun. They talk about interesting things. But church people, ah, not really. You know, if you're a Christian, you're going to be spending your entire eternity with church people. Why would you want to spend it with them if you don't like it now? For some of you, you know, I don't like the thing. I like to do my own thing, like things that God wants me to do. Like, I don't really like that. I like doing my own thing. I'll, I'll, stuff that God wants me to do, that's for like other people. Why would you want to spend eternity with this God then? Like, why? And this is where we get actually a corrective of how heaven and hell works. A lot of us, when we think of heaven and hell, and I've said this before in a previous message before, uh, we tend to think when people are, are in hell, they go, please let me into heaven. And God's like, no, stay down there and burn. And that's kind of like our image of how heaven and hell works. But I actually prefer what C.S. Lewis says, which is, you know, just like eternal life, it begins now, and you have its fruition in the resurrection. Hell begins now, and it, have its, it also has its fruition in the life to come. It's a continuation, and that's why hell is so miserable. Hell is miserable not primarily because of the flames and the fire. Hell is miserable because you are living your life in the flesh. You are living according to its desires, and you don't like it, and yet that's what you want. Versus life in the Spirit that leads to joy, that's what heaven is. But those who don't want life in the Spirit, they actually don't want heaven. 
They don't want that. Your choices become your habit. Your habits becomes your character. Your character becomes your destiny. You know, oftentimes we think it's the major decisions in our lives that really matter. Who will I marry? I need premarital counseling for that. What career will I have? I need a mentor for that. Where should I live? I need to find a realtor for that. I need to talk to people about these big decisions because those are the things that matter. Realize those big decisions, as important as they are, pale in comparison to what you choose to do every morning. What you choose to do every single morning makes way more of a difference to the type of house that you buy. The way you respond to your kids, the way you respond to your spouse makes way more of a difference than even the spouse that you choose to marry. Your decision to share life with the community or not makes way more of a difference than how much of a bank account that you choose to have. It's these thousands of daily decisions that you make that actually shape you to become the person that you are. And the question is, if you are constantly making thousands of decisions that's sowing to the flesh, you should not be surprised if you're reaping the flesh because of the daily decisions that you are making. Because your choices become your habits, your habits become your character, your character becomes your destiny. So here's a quick application. What choices do you make these days? They matter. They're not arbitrary, they matter. What habits are, are you developing these days? And perhaps even most interestingly, what kind of character are you forming? What's your character right now? Remember, God is not mocked. God is not mocked. He sees. He sees. Now, when we think about this, especially if you're a Christian, this can be very discouraging because we look back in our lives and go, you know, a lot of bad choices, not a lot of good habits. And this is where the gospel tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the thousands of choices that went wrong, forgiveness is there. Redemption can be there. If you give your life to Jesus and you repent, the wrongs that are there and the things that you feel like you cannot make up, you don't have to. That's not what Jesus is looking for. But now if there is forgiveness there, what do you do? There's still desires. There's still things you want. There's still the flesh. And that leads to that Jesus, he actually doesn't leave us alone. He gives us help, or more specifically, the helper. He gives us the spirit, and that leads to the second point, practicing life in the spirit. You know, just as we sow to the flesh, we become the do fleshly things. The good news is that the opposite is also true. If you sow to the spirit, you can now live by the spirit. Look what again it says in verse eight. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap flesh, uh, will, uh, from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Now, here's a question. You, if you sow to the Spirit, you reap the Spirit, and you get an eternal life, how do, you reap, how do you sow to the Spirit? What does that look like? And here's a very simple and yet challenging answer. It's the spiritual practices. It's the disciplines. It's the spiritual disciplines. Think about, and I know for a lot of us, we grew up like, oh, of course, the disciplines. But let me break that down a little bit of how it works. Think about the word discipline, what it does. To be disciplined or to do a discipline, you, what you are basically doing is you are doing something right now so that you could do something you cannot do right now later. You're doing something right now to do something that you cannot do at the current moment, but you can do later. What, let me give you an example. Right now, if I want to bench my own weight, I cannot do it. I could try as I might, as I might but that thing's going to crush me, the, the weight bar. But what I can do is discipline myself. 
Just lift lighter weights, just five at a time, 10 at a time, 20, more weights, more weights. And later on, I'm now able to lift my own weight, not because I was just naturally able to, it was through discipline. The disciplines, it's, not, it's something that helps you do something that you cannot do now at a later time. Now, through discipline, uh, this is, it translates into the spiritual realm, what we call it spiritual discipline, because you're doing essentially the same thing. Through benching, I am accessing power, growing power in myself to do something I cannot do right now. The spirit, though, it's a little bit different. Again, I like what John Mark Comer says. He says, quote, a discipline, a normal one, is a way to access power, but a spiritual discipline, it's similar but different. It is a way to access power, but it's different in that not only you're exercising your own capacity to do the right thing, right, what we call willpower, but you're also opening yourself up to a power far beyond your own that of the Holy Spirit. You are creating time and space to access God himself at the deepest level of your being. Just as your habits do something to you, what spiritual disciplines do is they are counter habits against the flesh. Every time you practice a spiritual discipline, your spirit gets a little bit stronger, your flesh gets a little bit weaker. Now, what are some examples of these disciplines, these practices to battle against the flesh? If you grew up in the church, traditionally, it's read God's word, pray before the Lord, fellowship with the church. All true. I try to do that regularly. Very true if, if, if you grew up in the church especially. If you read biblically, I think it's, you could probably say a spiritual discipline is anything you see Jesus do in the Gospels. Anything Jesus does, that's probably a practice that we should do because Jesus is the most true and fully human being. And to follow Jesus makes us truly human and fully human. But I would, what I want to do for the rest of our time, and I'll try to do it quickly, is let me introduce two underrated practices that I feel could especially help the battle of the flesh. Two underrated practices for our church to consider. One of them is very simple. So simple, you could do it tonight. It's almost silly how simple it is, and yet it's very powerful. And the second discipline is one that is just noticeably powerful, but very hard for the church to do. It's only for the desperate. The first one, everyone could do this. Very simple. Second one, very powerful, and only the desperate will do this. Here's the first one. The first, how do you channel the spirit to be activated where you could rest in the spirit's presence? Silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. As I mentioned before, I have three kids, and I'm always angry. But it's not just because my kids do bad things. They just do things all the time. All the time. Noise. Just no, non-stop noise. Daddy, can you look at this? Daddy, can you look at that? Daddy, can you get me this? Daddy, can you get me this? Daddy, can you help me? Daddy, please help me. Baby's crying, baby's crying, baby's crying. So tired. So anxious. You know what I sometimes do? I go, hey kids, let's play a game. Hide and seek. Go find me. I will look and hide in the most obscure spot in the home. I'm just resting. I'm just resting. That's, that, that's just, it's just crazy. So much noise that it makes me like anxious and tired and weary. And yet, do you realize that us today, you know how much noise surrounds us? You know how much noise is plaguing you guys right now? Social media, noise. Text messages, noise. TV, noise. Go to the mall. What's playing in the background? Music, noise. It's just noise. It's constant noise. And that's just the external noise. Think about the internal noise that you have 
Inside, you have this voice that never shuts up that's replaying that fight that you had with your spouse or with your roommate or the lustful thoughts that are popping in your brain or these hypothetical worries that you think about the future, what's going to lead to this, what's going to lead to that, or idealizing a life that you don't have. It's just this constant noise that's always there. And even though it's, you could quiet the external noise, then that's hard. The internal noise, even harder. What do you do? What do you do? That's why I respect Jesus. And I mentioned this before. Jesus, he was always around noise too, but at one point, he just bounced Go up to the mountain and just pray. Some people think he was just going up to the mountain. They focus on the prayer part. I actually like the mountain part. I'm like, why are you going up a mountain, man? It's like, he's just getting away from the noise. Just quiet. It's just still. Nothing that's out there. Connecting with the Father. That's silence and solitude. Silence and solitude is not isolation or escapism. It's not an INFJ's way of coping. It's intentional time. Open yourself up to the Spirit's presence. You know, personally, before when I was like, you know, I need to grow in my relationship with Jesus, I would read my Bible really deeply, and I'd journal, and I would pray, and, and again, all good stuff. I still do that. Necessary. But one thing I realize is it's like nonstop movement. Like, I'm reading my Bible. It's like action, action, action. I'm like reading. My brain's moving. I'm praying to God. Action, action, action. I'm journaling. Action, action, action. And after I do my devotional time, I'm even more tired than before I did it. I'm just like really tired. And I learn a lot of stuff, but I'm not really feeling God in my life through that alone. And I even realize even more specifically, you know when you read the Bible and you see people in the presence of God, what does God often tell them? Be still. Be silent. I am with you. I am with you. So you know what I do now? I've been doing this pretty regularly. I have a whole, we have a leadership cohort. We're all doing this together right now. Before I read, before I pray, I just sit there like a Buddhist monk and I'm just quiet for like five minutes. Just breathing in, breathing out, just recognizing, is God here? Is God here? And after one minute, that feels like an hour, I go, I just keep silence. I just keep silence. And it just like silences my soul. And it makes me go like, you know, I think God is here. I think God is here. And it's never been more helpful than during this current time right now with the Ukraine. I don't know about you guys, but the whole Ukraine crisis, man, so burdensome. So burdensome. I'll see, I'm, I'm like you guys. I'm looking on social media. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. I see the news. Oh my gosh, this is crazy. People text me. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And what's crazy is like, I feel kind of overwhelmed sometimes where I think, are they going to be okay over there? Like, this looks crazy. Are we going to be okay? Is World War III happening? Are we going to lose the economy here? Am I going to get drafted in the army? Is my son going to get drafted? Like, you know, all these crazy thoughts start going crazy, right? And that's where, again, I am so thankful. For six months already, I've been just doing silence and solitude, just being still, taking a moment each day. I just need to be still, just no noise. Like, put the phone away, put all that away, just silence. Be still. The presence of God. And what happens is, before like, I knew God is on his throne, I know he's in control. But in that moment, I'm like feeling it. I'm feeling God's in control. God is on his throne. Because I'm creating this environment where spirit is, the Spirit's coming to welcome the Spirit into my life. And I know it sounds sometimes hokey. Just, I'm like the last person who would want to be hokey. And yet something about that has been very transforming where I just have more peace. Because I feel like there's something about the Spirit entering my life in that way. So that's something to consider. Anyone could do it. Just five, ten minutes, just be still. Do you sense God's presence there? And the fact that we can't be still, it shows us something. It shows us something. Now, here's the second thing. 
if there's science and solitude, but those of you who are desperate for God, and I feel like a lot of us, we won't do this, but I hope our church begins to start doing this. Here's a second one that's very powerful, fasting. Fasting. Haven't heard that word in a while, right? Fasting. Something that we haven't ever done for some of us since youth group when they starved us in the youth retreat saying it's a fasting retreat because they want to save money. Fasting, right? No discipline is more powerful than fasting, and yet no discipline has been practiced least in the modern church. Historically, the church always practiced fasting. The question wouldn't just be, hey, did you read and pray? Did you do your devos? It would be follow up with, did you fast yesterday? That was just the way Christians lived. The early church fasted twice a week. That was just the normal rhythm of the church. In the fourth century, the entire church, they would fast once a year for 40 days. That was just normal. These weren't pastors. These were normal Christians fasting. Today, when Christians fast, we fast our social media maybe at best. Or we fast TV for a few weeks. Those are great. That's not fasting. That's abstinence. Fasting is you deny your flesh food. You deny your flesh food. You are starving your flesh. And the reason why is because that's so, such a normal Christian thing in the day is you are turning your body from an enemy to a friend. You are denying your body what Western people have such a hard time denying, which is whatever I want, I get it. If I'm hungry, I eat. If I want yogurt, I get yogurt. If I want boba, I get boba. Your body is used to dictating what you do. That's just kind of how it is. But what fasting does, it breaks that bond. It cuts off and severs the body from getting what it wants. It trains your body to not get what it wants. And what's helpful about that is when in real life, when you don't get what you want, you don't get the job you want, you don't get the marriage you want, you don't get the house that you want, which will happen, you are not throwing a fit going, God must not be real, what's going on? Because you trained your body to realize that I don't need these things to be happy. I know what is a want versus what is a need. And that's why fasting is such a powerful thing that was there in the church. And that's probably why the church back then was so powerful. Because people, when they're not hungry for God, they learn to grow hungry for God by hungering their bodies. And for those of us here, perhaps for us, this is something that makes us so sleepy. Is we haven't hungered for God for a long time because we don't know what hunger is anymore. We are fat and happy. And yet, Jesus provides us a solution. There's fasting. Jesus fasted before the devil, before he fought him in the wilderness. Why? To get ready. To get ready for this fight. This is why the church regularly fasted. This is why sex addicts or people who are addicted to pornography, one of the main things that Christian counselors recommend is you should try fasting. Deny your body your wants. While the scriptures are the main ways perhaps to fight the devil's lies, silence and solitude and fasting, that's how you fight the flesh. That's how you fight the flesh. You can't produce love, joy, peace, and patience and kindness, but the Spirit can. You just have to have the Spirit welcome into your life. I would recommend there's nothing more powerful way to doing that than silence and solitude, where you welcome the Spirit's presence, and fasting, where you jumpstart that hunger. And so, again, these are two things that I'm just introducing to our church don't be surprised I mentioned over and over again, silence and solitude and fasting. But let me conclude with this. Where are you at right now in your life? Like, where are you at in your life right now? Are you, does your character display the type of character that you want? Do your habits display the type of habits that you want? 
Do your choices, are they the type of choices that you're proud to have? If you look at your life right now, it could be, again, discouraging. But I really appreciate, again, in verse 9 of what Galatians chapter 6 says. Paul tells us all this, but then he tells us in verse 9, and let's not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. Don't grow weary. Even if you're not happy with where you're at, don't grow weary. You know, recently I made a commitment. I'm going to try to, uh, I'm trying to live out the fruit of the Spirit, and one of the fruit of the Spirit is peace. And I'm like, I, I want more peace. I don't want to hear criticism or comments or, and anything and get like shook. I, I just want to be chill. Like you can't shake me. That's like my goal. And when I look at my, that, that journey, I realize that's a life journey to get there. It's not going to happen automatically, but you can get there. Because I look back at my life even, like in my 20s, how strong was my peace? Probably not good. Any kind of joke someone makes or some type of snide comment, I have to fire back. There was no peace in my heart in my 20s. In my 30s, I think I'm a little bit, I'm better. I'm like, I'm okay. Like there's more peace. I feel more zen. I feel pretty good. What about my 40s? Like how peaceful do I want to be in my 40s? I hope it's good. I hope I could be like, I'm at peace. I'm good. Criticism doesn't, I'm good, man. 50s, I hope it's strong. I hope, like, man, I hope I'm a peaceful guy in my 50s where it's all good. All this stuff is happening, it's all good. And then in my 60s to 80s, I hope nothing shakes me. Like, I'm bulletproof. That's my hope. But it all starts right now. It all starts now. It all starts for you now. What kind of person do you want to be? So to the Spirit. So to the Spirit. Invite the Spirit in your life. See what he does in you. Because God promises that the Spirit, he does something when he's a presence to the heart of his people. He grows fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so at this time, I was invite the praise team up. Can I ask us to respond in prayer? If we could take a moment, maybe for some of us at this moment, we just need to, for the first time, just be still. Just be still. Don't worry about prayer request right now, just, I haven't been still in a long time. This guy is talking on the stage this whole time. I just need to be still. I just need to be quiet and remember, hey, God is still here. God is here. So let's take a moment to maybe some of us be still. Or maybe for some of us, you know, you've been still for a while, but yeah, you're realizing that there's these habits that are in your life that you're not sowing to the spirit, you're sowing to the flesh. Maybe right now is something, what can you do to start beginning to sow in the spirit more? And you just need that strength, that motivation to do so. Whatever your heart may be at, if we could just respond in this time in prayer of either silence or requesting to the Lord, whatever is deep in our hearts. And so let's take a moment to pray, and then afterwards I'll close this in prayer.